Blog Talk Radio. You're listening to Starseed Radio Academy, empowering Starseed to better serve the planet. Welcome to Starseed Radio Academy. It's Tuesday, August 3rd, 2021, and I'm your host, Arielle Taylor, with my co-hosts, Lavendar and Anastasia. Our special guest this evening is Cheryl Costa, who is a native and resident of upstate New York. She's a two-service military veteran in the Air Force and Navy and a retired professional from the aerospace industry. Cheryl wrote the wildly popular UFO column, New York Skies, for Syracuse New Times newspaper from 2013 to 2019. She holds a Bachelor of Arts degree from the State University of New York at Empire State College in entertainment, writing, and production. She's been a speaker at the International UFO Congress and the MUFON Symposium and many other UFO conferences. Cheryl and her wife Linda are UFO statisticians and have compiled the eye-opening statistical models of the UFO sighting phenomena in the United States and over 3,100 countries. Oh, counties, sorry, I thought that said countries. Uh, from 2001 to, two, to 2020, Americans filed 167,632 UFO sighting reports. The United States averaged about 8,382 8, per year, uh, 692 eight per month, uh, 161 per week, and about 23 sighting reports per day. In their most recent book, UFO Sightings Desk Reference, United States of America from 2001 to 2020, Cheryl and Linda have compiled and analyzed over 20 years' worth of UFO sightings. In addition, they've evaluated the yearly, monthly, and hourly aspects of all 33 known UFO shapes. You can find their eye-opening book on Amazon and just, um, just type in Cheryl Costa and it will come up. Both of their books will come up. At the top of the show, it's Anastasia's Starseed News, bringing topics of interest to starseeds not heard in the mainstream. And we'd like to thank Kathy and Fiona for hosting the Switchboard tonight for those who may have a question or comment for our guest. We have an online Starseed community at starseedhotline.ning.com, and it's a safe place to connect with other Starseeds, thanks to Tammy's continual dedication. You can download our shows on iTunes or right here on Blog Talk. And if you'd like to show your support of our program, please just click follow on our page here, and you'll get our biweekly show notice if you enable those. Our main website is starseedhotline.com. The Stage 1 Starseed Confirmations are based on Lavendar's discovery of star markings in your natal astrological chart, and the Stage 2 session is a one-on-one Zoom session available with Lavendar, Anastasia, Emerald, Miara, Riley, or myself. And um, excluding Lavendar and myself, um, our team is available within a couple of weeks, so you don't have to wait months like, like you did last year. And remember, if you have a birthday coming up, you'll get a window of 10 hours of power. And you can find out exactly when that happens by requesting your solar return timing. And that takes less than a week, usually. But if you do want the stage two interpretation of that chart, um, and you're late in getting it in, Emerald, Riley, or Miara are also available with very little waiting. So first up tonight, I would like to introduce Anastasia, 
with her wonderful Starseed News. Uh-oh, hang on, hang on, Anastasia. I lost you. Okay, there you are. <laughs> okay, that thing wasn't Good wanting to click. Mario. Thank you. <laughs> I'm glad you found me. Thank you so much for the wonderful applause. I look forward to it. <laughs> I know you do. Well, we have to, yeah, you're also wonderful. Well, we've got news tonight, of course. I wouldn't be here otherwise, so let's start by talking about this year's Perside Meteor Shower. They say this is going to be a great one. So during the next few weeks, you need to look up to the sky at night, and you can expect to see more than the average number of shooting stars. Of course, a lot more. Now, the Persides, according to NASA, are considered to be the best meteor shower of the year. Now, this year's show began July 17th, but it's going to last until the 26th of August. Now, the peak is going to be on the night of the 11th, just a few days away now, maybe a week, and it's going to run into the early hours of August 12th. That's when the rate of shooting stars will be at their highest, with maybe as much as 50 meteors per hour. The good news is that the moon is only going to be 13% illuminated on the 11th of August, so if you happen to have clear skies, you'll have an excellent view of all those shooting stars. You can be anywhere in the Northern Hemisphere to enjoy this show of speed and light in the sky. And good summer weather will make for a comfortable viewing session. So to see the starry night, the starry night and the starry meteors, try to face northeast toward the Perseus constellation. Now, according to Farmer's Almanac, meteors occur when Earth rushes through a stream of dust and debris left behind by a passing comet. In the case of the Persides, it happens to be the Swift-Tuttle Comet. And when these pieces strike the Earth's upper atmosphere, friction with the air causes the particles to burn up, and we see the light as a meteor. Now, if you're not able to get out to a place that has dark skies to watch the event, maybe you'll live where there's too many streetlights, well, you can go check out something called the Virtual Telescope Project. Check it out on the net. They will be streaming this meteor shower live on the peak night of August 11th, 12th, so everybody can watch and enjoy it. The Virtual Telescope Project, if you're in the metro area and you can't see because of streetlights, should be worth your while. Well, this is excellent news for the environment. Listen, you guys, check this out. Maine, the state of Maine, is going to be the first U.S. state to ban PFAs, otherwise known as forever chemicals, in all products. And huge companies are getting on board. Now, retailers and restaurants are recently uniting to purge their inventory of dangerous forever chemicals. And now consumers can feel a little bit better about maybe supporting some of their favorite companies. Now, this is made up of 23 brands totaling almost 84,000 physical stores and $570 billion in annual sales. And this brand-new alliance is uniting against a class of chemical contaminants variously called PFAs, PFOA, PFOs, or polyfluoroalkyl substances. Now, the diversity of these retailers reflects the nature of the threat. PFAs come from a wide variety of products, but have been known uh, they, they won't degrade in nature. And that gives them the moniker Forever Chemicals. They are found in the coatings inside popcorn bags, on waterproof raincoats, and on linings for nonstick Teflon pants. They're also injected via spray as industrial firefighting foam and stain protectors for furniture and outdoor equipment and are found baked into carpet, fi- carpet fibers. 
And now, now, they're being found in the water supply for as many as 16 million Americans. Recent legislation and corporate governance strategies have seen major reductions in the use of PFAs in some places. For example, on July 15th, Maine became this first state to ban them outright, except where it might be currently unavoidable, such as, such as we might find in hospital and medical supplies. Now, they say that the benefit, however, to be gained from a company, let's say like McDonald's, uh, not using anything with PFA in their packaging, is that their products end up all over the country and the world. And so this ends up protecting people all over the world from harmful substances without relying on the support of a localized government agency. So if a town in France does not ban PFAs, any, any McDonald's product in that country will benefit from their ban, and other international companies are doing the same. Uh, for instance, Target, Amazon, 7-Eleven, Food Lion, Wendy's, Panera Bread, Lowe's, and others are doing this. Now, there is an institution or institute called Safer Chemicals, Healthier Families. And this is an organization that provides excellent oversight on the state of contaminants and harmful chemicals and the products that usually contain them, the scientific work that identified them, and government ordinances banning them. They say that even though it's likely every human in the U.S. has PFAs in their bodies, there are steps everyone can take to minimize their risk. They tell us one method, stay away from takeout food containers, popcorn bags, or packaged food. This group also provides a list of name brand packaging that is certified as PFAs free. And that again is the Safer Chemicals Healthier Families. Another resource is called Made Safe. They also identify common toxic chemicals and everyday household products, hygiene products, cleaning products, and they will tell you which ones have PFAs. They tell us avoid Teflon or other nonstick coatings on pans. Don't use them if you've left them on too high of a heat for too long or if the coating isn't so nonstick anymore, just get rid of the pan. Well, there is brand new U.S. legislation. It was passed on July 21st. The House voted to pass a PFAs Action Act. It's called H.R. 2467. If it's passed through the Senate, it would give the EPA one year to designate PFOs and PFOA as harmful chemicals, but five years to determine whether to designate PFAs as a harmful substance and a harmful air pollutant. And we've taken the slow track here. In the same vein, a national drinking water standard for these chemicals, meaning how much contamination is legally allowed, is to be established over a period of two years. The bill suggests products should have a containing PFAs label, but that such a label would be voluntary. Yeah, it's a slow-moving slow moving government action for now, but we say we can be proud of these 23 brands in America, as well as states like Maine, which aren't waiting around to get rid of a forever toxic chemical. Good for them. They're taking action. So, well, I mean, I, that's just excellent news, really. These are corporations. Really? Yeah. I mean, can you believe it? So, good news. Really good news. And in Indiana, there's news emerging out of that little state. They are planning to test roads that will charge your electric vehicles as you drive. Yeah, imagine to be, being able to charge an electric car while you're driving. Well, a German company, Germans are known for their innovation, 
is working in collaboration with the Indiana State Government and Purdue University to make this a reality. Together, they're going to test out new streets that have been developed to automatically charge the battery of any electric vehicle that drives on them, provided that the vehicle happens to be outfitted with a special receiver. Magnetic particles are mixed into the concrete, which can transfer power with 95% efficiency once electrified. The research is still in its early stages, but if everything goes to plan, the Indiana Department of Transportation may start constructing these roads across the state. They tell us that this is not the first time the concept of a road that's capable of charging electric vehicles uh, has come up. However, they tell us even if the concept is sound, the real challenge is figuring out a way to implement the system in a way that makes sense. According to a Cornell University engineer working on the technology, we're still about maybe five to ten years away from driving on electric car charging streets. Well, that's all very fascinating. It sounds brilliant. I just hope that they do research on maybe some detriments that we you know what what is all this magnetism <laughs> let's let's be real thorough let's look at the positives and the negative of this idea but anyway there it is I mean can you believe it guys streets that will charge the batteries in cars wow really that's awesome amazing yeah well they're heading the right oh, direction yeah absolutely I mean yes you know they've been saying well, where are they going to put the charging stations? And how are the power companies going to supply that much electricity? Because really, we don't have the capacity in this country. The infrastructure just can't provide charging for all those vehicles. Well, now here's, here's an idea that works. It solves the problems. So, wow, brilliant. Gosh, people can be smart when they want to be. Well, um, ever since I was young, and as I've even gotten mature, I've always admired older people that have been fit, and engaged and alive and lively. I mean, who doesn't love to see that? I've got a story tonight for you. I wish I could show you pictures. wish we had, you know, visual for this. Here's a woman who was 70 years old uh, who was in very bad health, and now she's 75, and she's like this sensational viral Internet sensation. Her quote, I love this. She says, oh, I'll tell you what this is all about in a second. She says, you can't turn back the clock, but you can wind it up again. Well, this 75-year-old woman said this, and why did she say it? Because in 2017, just four short years ago, she started a fitness routine when she was 71. At that time, she weighed nearly 200 pounds. She had rising blood pressure. She had kidney trouble. She was also on medication for cholesterol. She had stomach trouble, acid reflux. And her doctors wanted to double her doses. She said, I was sick and tired of being sick and tired. So she decided to leave home in Ontario, Canada, and move to Mexico to join her daughter, who works as a fitness coach. And once there, she started her lifestyle change with some daily cardio and trained on weights about four days a week. And she changed her diet. She said, I started getting used to eating five balanced meals a day a pre-workout meal, post-workout meal, and three other meals. Before, I had been eating three meals a day, but wasn't aware of breaking meals up into proteins, fat, and carbs. Within nine months, she was off all, all of her medications, and now at 75, she says she's in the best shape of her life. You should see the photographs before and after. She says, people need to know, especially women, that you're not finished at 40, 
definitely not finished at 50 or 60 or 70. You can go on and on until the day there is no more. And you should be able to do it with pizzazz. She said it's just not about eating and better exercising, however. She says, remember that it's not your body that got you out of shape. It was your mind. If you really want to make lasting changes, you have to tackle your mindset. She insists that the toughest battle is not a physical one. It's changing your beliefs about yourself. She goes on to say, if you really want to change, you're going to have to change who you think you are deep down inside. As long as you keep telling yourself that you're a snacker, you're going to continue to snack when you're stressed or bored. As long as you continue to tell yourself that you're a drinker, then you'll eventually go back to a glass of wine at night or on the weekends with friends. As long as you keep telling yourself that you're too old or too injured or too overweight, you keep on going back to that story when you faced the inevitable challenges ahead of you. So changing your mindset, changing your identity, this is absolutely key to lasting transformation. Well, not only is she now fit, she's also a very wise woman. And on her social media account, this tech-savvy and progressive mother, grandmother, posts photos of herself in sports tops, or she's jumping the waves at the beach in a swimsuit, uh, a bikini, mind you. She looks terrific. She wow. has over a million followers, and she's in partnership with a retailer called Women's Best. Her fitness journey is inspiring women everywhere and men to improve their quality of life and proving that it's never too late to be your best self. Her daughter said, at 70 years old, she was huffing and puffing just to get up a flight of stairs. Now she's learning how to barbell squat and is hip thrusting over 200 pounds. Wow. Awesome. Her. awesome. Wonderful. Wonderful. I love what she says about mindset. That's it, guys. That's it. Well, there's a new partnership, partnership with police in Colorado, a partnership between an auto supply store and the police. And it's putting smiles on the faces of motorists that might not have the money to fix a broken part on their vehicle. A store, an auto parts store, has gifted the Denver Police Department with 100 gift cards worth $25 each. And they're supposed to hand these out to drivers who are normally pulled over by cops and giving a warning or a ticket to pay a fine. Now, when they pull over a motorist for maybe a bad taillight or a bad headlight, they'll have the option to give a $25 gift card to help the motorist get it fixed and get them back on the road to stay safe. Denver Police Chief says that officers have already issued the cards and are enjoying the smiles it puts on drivers' faces. They said the auto parts store donation not only helps us get greater compliance with the motoring public, but it also helps us build community relationships and, and makes us stronger. Here's another company doing a good deed. Really amazing. $125 gift cards to give out to the public, given by the police so they can get their cars fixed at a time when a lot of people can't afford such things. And another story. You know, I, I love this one. This is great. Don't y'all just hate to throw out old stuff? Well, maybe you don't. I mean, a lot of people like to shop, and they love new stuff, and they love it shiny, and they love the latest and the greatest. But I have a toaster that's about 35 years old. Do I want to part with that thing? Heck no, I don't. It's not pretty, as you can imagine. Okay, 
I've had it forever. It still works, although probably not as well as a new one would. But I refuse to throw it away. And why do I do that? Because I'm stubborn? No. Because I just really hate to let go of something that lasted for 35 years and buy something new that might only last four or five years. Because it's true that older things were made better and they last longer. And I hate to consume. I hate to throw out trash. Just prefer to hold on to it till it no longer doesn't work. And when it doesn't work, I've caught myself thinking, how am I going to get my toaster repaired? Okay, so I'm a little odd, but that's how I think. And now there is a, a little business in the UK that is solving this problem. It's called the Repair Shop. And it's on a mission not only to fix items, but to fix the throwaway culture. The urge for many of us is to throw something away, even if it means we have to buy a new one for more money, as it's often easier than just finding a store that will fix it. Try to find a repair shop today. Good luck. And then if you find one, you've got to take the item in. Then you have to go out later. You've got to pick it all back up with the chance that it might break again in the future. But at this little community, uh, and actually it's in Scotland, uh, people are taking on that responsibility of changing those things. Um, they opened a shop in a little neighborhood. It's called, like I said, the repair shop. Hundreds of residents started bringing in their broken electronics, their clothes, their shoes, you name it, dishes, whatever, whatever was broken, they brought it in to be fixed. And um, they're calling their shop Remade, actually. And they say that they actually want to change the way British people consume products. There is a team of technicians, general repairmen and tailors, tailors, mind you, that work at this not because they want to be charitable, but because they actually have come up with a thriving business that fixes every single imaginable gadget, home appliances, lawnmowers, jewelry, garments, Christmas ornaments, you name it, they'll fix it. <laughs> as well as fixing things, they work to find new items um, as a second-hand outlet. In other words, they try to connect products with people who are in need. So far, they've repaired and handed out a 1,000 computers that were donated by others in the community to give to people in the community that don't have computers. A thousand computers they've given out to people without computers. They needed fixing, they fixed them. And one repeat customer had this brilliant moment when an extension cord she owned quit working. And she said, my immediate response was, well, it's too bad. I guess I'm going to have to buy another one. And then she remembered, I don't need to do that. We have a repair shop in town. Who fixes extension cords? Well, they fixed hers. If you stop and think about it, repair is the right thing to do for the planet. Because for one thing, old electronics are contributing a lot to the non-degradable uh, landfill waste. Furthermore, it's the burden of transporting, storing, and tossing e-waste in a landfill and the emissions that come from producing new things. One of my favorite people in the world will say, that's a waste of Mother Earth resources, all of these things that we're producing. You know, computers, phones, and tablets need microchips that rely on lithium to produce them. And that's a rare earth mineral that's very costly, both in terms of dollars and carbon dioxide emissions in order to mine it. Now, this little store, this little staff, the store, um, they have grown their numbers to 11 employees so they can keep up with the demand of the Scottish people taking on the mission of having their old stuff fixed up 
so they don't have to buy new things and further pollute the planet. Fascinating. Wouldn't that be great to see that all over? If, right. if every community yeah. had a good hair shop? I think it's brilliant, and I think it's very necessary. When we think about all of the products that are consumed across the world, all of the factories in China and every other country just working like crazy to keep everybody's insatiable needs fulfilled. I mean, you know, I mean, I think the last time I bought a coffee pot was six months ago. And in, in general, I'm probably having to buy one every six months. Um, and I finally did find a product that lasted longer. But in general, you know, I mean, think of all the plastic and waste involved in that. And I'm one of millions of other people who often have to toss stuff. So it's good. Let's get them fixed. I think it's a wonderful idea. Here's one of my favorite stories for tonight, and I'm saving my very favorite for last. But this is a story about a family being reunited with their dog. The dog was lost for nearly two years. And the owner, this man, never went to sleep with his television on. But one night he happened to fall asleep with his television on anyway. And what happened next was a miracle to this man. He woke up, and he was awakened by the channel's Adopt-A-Pet program on his local Wisconsin station. As he sat up in bed, he looked, and the program featured a brown dog with the most adorable underbite. And the man said it took only a second for him to realize that was his family's dog, Payday, who was missing since two years ago. They originally got Payday, to be a companion for the man's little girl, who'd remained upset for two years over the incredible loss of her best friend. Well, Payday was returned to the mourning family, and everyone was ecstatic to finally be whole again. Now, you know, you just have to wonder. I mean, he never went to sleep with his TV on, but he did that night, and in the wee hours of the morning, they had their Adopt-A-Pet program. He woke up, and there was their dog right there. Oh, right in front of him. Oh. I mean, is that like consciousness calling the dog home? Is that like a powerful example of what love can do and how consciousness carries the day? So they're all together again, Payday and his family. I love that story. It's an adorable dog, by the way. Um, oh. Kind of uh, one of those shaggy dogs with fangs. Real cute. Oh. <laughs> and my favorite story. Isn't that great? Here's my favorite yeah. story. Uh, you know, geese mate for life. I don't know how many of you knew that, but humans can be very fickle in our partnerships, but not geese. Geese uh, get goose married, and they stay that way for life. You know, when they honk uh, forever, they mean it, which would explain why when a Canada goose named Arnold wound up in the hospital and his missus marched up to the threshold demanding visitation rights. <laughs> well, I mean, yeah. The pair of wild geese are longtime residents at a pond close to the Cape Wildlife Center in Barnstable, Massachusetts. Now, though well known to the faculty's crew, uh, the facility's crew, the avian inhabitants have generally declined human interaction, preferring to keep their own company. But when the uh, caretakers noticed that Arnold was limping and injured, they decided to step in and intervene. And after a literal wild goose chase that eventually ended in his capture, uh, veterinary exam revealed that the wounded duck had two open fractures on one of his feet, 
Likely, they say, caused by an underwater predator. He grabbed his foot and chewed on it. Well, with the webbing and the skin pulled away, leaving his bones exposed, they had to do an operation to repair his foot. Fine. Then the following day, as they were prepping Arnold for surgery, staff members heard a faint, inexplicable tapping at their door. Tap, 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 tap. We turned to see that his mate had waddled up onto the porch and was attempting to break into our clinic. She had somehow located him and was agitated that she could not get inside. Once she tracked him down, Arnold's missus stood watch throughout the entire procedure, refusing to budge from her sitting place by the doors. They tell us that in the post-off, after the successful operation, Arnold was placed in close proximity to his grateful spouse. The natural order was soon restored as she quickly settled in to attend to the needs of her still wobbly hubby. His mate was immediately calmed down and began to groom him through the door, according to the officials. They both seemed much more at ease in each other's presence. And although it will take some weeks for Arnold to recuperate, he's expected to make a full recovery. And when he's deemed sound, staff will return him to the wild, and then he and his mate can get back to the business of living their honking happy lives ever after. Ah. That's a crazy story. Animals animals are something. Man, that just melts me. That's beautiful. And speaking of hearts and animals and beautiful things, and from my heart to each one of you, I wish you all to have a beautiful next couple of weeks. I love you all. Thank you, Ariel, for the opportunity to be with you tonight. It's always a pleasure, and you do a great job. Thank you so much, Anastasia. And uh, while I'm thinking about it, I I, um, wanted to let everyone know, because we're going to Arkansas um, next week, our next show will be on August 24th. Okay, thank you so um, much. Yeah, so we're leaving next week, and we'll be gone on the following Tuesday. So August 24th, we'll be back to our regular program. Very good, and I'll see you all on the the 24th. Thank you, Ariel. Okay. Good night. Thanks, Anastasia. Good night. Okay, so now I am going to get um, Lavendar and our guest, Cheryl Costa. Get your mics opened up. Okay. Okay, well, hey, Cheryl, welcome Hi. to the show. We're excited that you're here. Sounds. I'm looking forward to it. It was a very interesting news, news segment. <laughs> yeah, things that you just don't hear unless, uh, unless you're listening here. So, Lavendar, are you ready to go? I'm ready. Okay, take it away. Well, Cheryl, I finally got your book, and boy, is it big. It's so big, but it's it's a reference book, so it should be big, right? Right. <laughs> yeah, so you've done absolutely a wonderful job. I mean, how long did it take you to do this? Well, okay, there's, there's two numbers, okay? I uh, actually started working on the book the second week of January, and we literally, we were projecting we'd probably upload it to Amazon by uh, probably the 1st of June. Uh, we literally, uh, our new process for putting the, uh, a book like this together worked better than we dreamed, and we actually had the book ready to go on uh, the 1st of May. So we were a whole month early. You don't often hear that kind of thing where people deliver something early. And uh, uh, we were delighted. And, and, and as a retired project manager, uh, I'm delighted that we were able to improve the process to the point of doing that. Now, before we were able to start the book, 
back in 2020, uh, we started exploring how we were going to put the book together back during the lockdown. And we realized that something that we really wanted to be able to do, we wanted to be able to print out the capability of going down to not only the state and county level, we wanted to be able to go be able to do deep reports right down to the municipal level. Okay, the local town, village, town, country, village, town and uh, town and city kind of thing. And uh, we figured out that uh, uh, 14% of the records, and we our database at that time was about 147,000 records. Um, 14% of the database, the cities were spelled wrong. <laughs> so we, we started in the middle of August, and I started putting in like a, literally a seven and a half, eight hour day every day. And I'm reti- technically I'm retired, so it was like going back to my day job again. And every, every day, uh, uh, every work day, I sat down for about six and a half, seven hours, and I had a golden mail list, and I went through correcting the city, uh, the city spellings and also correcting county if it was necessary, but we also added like zip codes and uh, uh, latitude and longitude, but it took, that took 650 hours to do, and we finished by the first week of January, and so if you really want to be truthful about this, this book took us about 1,400 hours to do. Oh, wow. Well, the first thing that, that, that crossed my mind when, when I received your book, I sat down, I have this special chair, chair that I sit in, and me and the chair had this discussion about the book, and it went like this. This needs to be in every library in the country. Thank you. So we need to find a nonprofit to get funds to make this happen. Actually, actually, it's not even that. The libraries actually have the funds. Um, back when we did our first book in 2017, um, they went from 2001 to 2015, um, I was talking to a lot of people in the UFO groups on um, on Facebook, and I said, look, if you really, truly believe in disclosure, it's about disseminating information. Here is the first book of technical information uh, as accurate as, like, farm reports and crop reports, that type of thing. And I said, all you have to do is copy the the page from uh, Amazon and take it into your local library to the information desk and say, we should have a copy of this in our collection. Okay, that's all you have to do. That's all you have to do. Um, okay, well that'll work. Because it, just, you know, if, what, you copy, if you copy if you copy the Amazon page, if you copy the Amazon page, um, the, with the part that has all the information, there's uh, all the information that cataloger needs to uh, to pull uh, to order the book. And most libraries order from Amazon anyway, or one of their subsidiaries. So, um, but you know, something reaction I got from a lot of people: Oh, we don't want to sell your book. You're just trying to sell books. And that wasn't the point. You know, no, you know, it's not. It, no, <laughs> get the information out there. That's what this is about, you know. Well, it's, I applaud you. Bravo, bravo, bravo. I mean, this was, I could tell that, that this was a heartfelt assignment and that uh, you were someone that could really take it from start to finish and make it work. So let me ask you a couple of questions about sure, you sure, sure. and your particular um, alignment with this subject matter. So have you witnessed uh, a, a ship? Have you had encounters of high strangeness? What brought you to the place where you knew that this was part of your mission? 
Okay, well, I saw my first UFO when I was 12, this was about 1965. Uh, the real short story was a late August afternoon, about three weeks before school started back up. We were visiting an uncle's farm up in uh, uh, central New York, and we were coming down off the hill, and it was one of those seasons that had been a really good wet season, and the corn was higher than the car kind of thing. And we're coming down this dirt road, my mother had my father stop the car. This is going down a hill. And out, in the, not a cloud in the sky, clear blue western sky, and upstate New York we have rolling foothills, so just we're looking out, and there's this silver ball parked out there like a rock. And uh, my mother explained that it might be, uh, it might be a weather balloon, might be something the Air Force is doing. NASA was only five or six years old at that point. It might be something NASA was doing. And then she says, you know, it might be people from another world. And, of course, that fascinated the 12-year-old, you know. So, <laughs> right. uh, so we got back on the road and got down to the bottom of the hill. My dad turned left to get back on the state road to head back to our hometown. It's only about 25, 30 minutes away. And I... We had a big old black Chevy Impala at that time, and I crawled up in the back window. Those things had those big, big windows that arched back, right? And I crawled up in that back window, and I just plopped my chin on my on my on my fist and said, "Who are you guys? Who are you guys?" You know. And when it decided to leave, I never, I did not see an effect like this until like the early 90s was one of the Star Trek movies where when the warp, the ship kicked in the warp drive, it goes off and it's just like bright flash when it goes into into the subspace, you know, gone, you know. And uh, it just absolutely fascinated me. And a thing like that changes you. Once you've seen one of these things, really seriously seen one that was beyond normal, conventional explanation, it changes you. Now, I was 12, going on 13, and you know how we were as teenagers, mom and dad are stupid, you know, that kind of thing. And uh, this is actually one of those few things that drew my mother and I uh, together somewhat. We'd get books in this, at the library or in the bookstore or something like this and read them to each other and things like this, you know. And there were a lot of good authors back in those days, this late 60s. And then when our Eric Von Danigan's book, The Chariot of the Gods, came along, um, our copy got destroyed. She was dog-earing on the top of the pages. I was dog-earing on the bottom. You know, it was crazy. But um, uh, through the years, my mother and I disagree on an awful lot of things. The one thing we can still have a civil conversation about is the current state of UFOs. Wow. Okay. So let me ask you this. Um, why don't you have case studies included in this book? What was well, the okay. – well, first of all, it's such a big book, I guess. I guess you're going to have to do the second book. Is that what you're doing with case studies? Uh, no, no. Actually, we don't do case studies um, because we're doing statistical data. We've, got, we're, we've gone up – uh, above case studies. Case studies, I, I try to explain case studies. Case studies are the, the guys, the, the field investigators, you know, and my, my hat is off to them. They do a good job. They go out there in the field and they analyze this stuff. Some of these guys spend thousands of dollars buying instruments to make the measurements, test the soil density, where the thing landed, all this kind of stuff, right? But um, case studies are like studying a single ant, you know, a little six-legged ant out here to eat sugar and goes in an ant hole. And 
our our work at a statistical level, instead of studying a single one or two ants, we decided to study the whole ant farm. Okay, the bigger okay. picture. And that's yeah. the difference. That's the difference. And um, people say, well, you can't verify all of them. I said, of course I can't. I can't. And the first book, it was 121,000 sightings. This one's 167,632. I said, there's no way we can go back and vet 20 years' worth of data. But statistically, we can make a, a test and say a certain percentage of them um, are junk. Okay, and uh, there's various people who have given a good number on that. Dr. Valet says 80% is noise. Um, the MUFON investigators go with about 70% is noise. Um, Linda and Cheryl, we sat down, we came up with our own criteria, and we came back with about 68% is noise. So usually when we do a chalk talk about, you know, what's good, we go with that 70% number like the MUFON guys, and we say, okay, 30% is worth keeping. And of the yeah. twenty, if the of the twenty years worth of sightings of that one hundred sixty-seven thousand six hundred, whatever, thirty um, percent is about fifty thousand. When you divide that fifty thousand, I stopped fifty-three thousand. Um, when you divide it by twenty years, you end up at about twenty-five hundred a year. Okay, and when you divide that by twelve, twelve months, you get a number of around two hundred and ten, two hundred and fourteen. What that number is, is that um, for all 240 months of the 20 years, there was 200, and we'll say 210, 210 per month for 240 months that were probably the real thing. Okay, and if you divide that by, say, say we assume all 50 states are equal, they're not. But if all 50 states, for, talk, for just kind of just chewing the fat, 50 states divide 210 by that 50, all states would have had four genuine sightings a month for the past 20 years. That's still an awesome amount. Yeah, that is. Oh, my goodness. So why isn't population the only significant driver of UFO sightings reports? Okay, that's a, that's one of those things people knee-jerk a lot. You know, uh, they'll, they'll look at some state like California and say, well, they got a big population. That's why they got all the sightings. Well, California is weird. It's, a, it's an animal by itself. It, it crosses nine lines of latitude. It's like three or four different states by itself. Okay, so I try not to compare California to anybody else. But population. We found that we discovered that population was a driver, of course, but we also discovered that, in fact, Linda, uh, my spouse, who's also the publisher of the book, discovered that temperate weather was. A state, if you're up in a state like uh, up in the New England states or like up in Michigan or something like this, um, there's a certain amount of sightings January through about May, and it starts to tick up a little bit. And then in June, it goes up a little more. And then July and August are through the roof. And then it starts coming back down a little bit in September. And then October, November, December goes back down to that quiescent level we had during the first six months of the year. And um, we thought it was like that everywhere. Hey, summer months, yeah, that's why, you know. But when she started going, she was going through my charts. I wasn't really paying attention to the charts. I was making them. You know, and she said, "Did you notice that there's a latitude difference that the that the the summertime chart changes?" 
And as you got down in the middle-level states like Virginia, go all the way across about the same latitude, maybe Oklahoma, go across there, um, that peak number in the summertime comes down and starts flattening out, and the rest of those numbers come up. And you get into the deep south states like uh, southern Texas, Georgia, Florida, it's, it's a statistically flat line for the amount of sightings, except it dips a little bit in the summertime because it's too hot to be outside. Okay, and uh, so we found out that temperate weather was a driver, and then we found out that, um, that we suspected that leisure time was a, was a driving issue because a lot of reports that we had read, um, people said, I went outside for a smoke. I went out to walk with the dog. Uh, I went outside on uh, between shifts at work to eat my lunch and have a smoke, you know, and we kept seeing this repeating pattern of people saying I was on my deck. My wife and I were laying on the hood of my car, you know, with that kind of thing. So we found, found that leisure time was an issue. This is with the first book. When we got to the second book, we had the data much more refined, and we found out that hours of the day, 68 to 70% of the sightings occur between 5 o'clock and about 11.30 at night, with the bulk of it happening between 8.30 and 10.30 at night, essentially bedtime. And the other 16 hours a day, from like, like 1 o'clock in the morning to about 4, 5, 4 o'clock in the afternoon, only represents 25% of the sightings. And wow. it's, consistent. it's consistent with almost every state. There's some minor variations, but for the most part, it's consistent. with. Every. In fact, there's a little dip about between 7 o'clock in the morning and about 9 o'clock in the morning, which is morning drive time. Nobody reports UFOs because you're stuck in traffic, you know. And George Knapp made a, at, um, uh, West made a comment about this uh, journalist at KLAS, and he made the comment, he says, this is as much about the UFOs, but it's almost as much about human activity. You know, I'll give you an example. You were somebody was mentioning Arkansas here earlier in the show, and um, I did I did the um, Ozarks UFO conference uh, in 2019, and Arkansas had a funny. There's a little there's a little bump. The, the curve of the, the the hourly sightings comes down to almost nothing after one o'clock in the morning, but about five o'clock in the morning, five six o'clock in the morning, there's this bump. Okay. But in Arkansas, there was a bump at 3 o'clock in the morning and then a bump, a reg, the regular bump at 5 o'clock in the morning. And I, I told the audience, I don't know what that means. I don't know what that is. These 12 guys come up to me afterwards, standing there in coveralls, and they said, we're farmers. We grow a lot of chickens here in Arkansas at 3 o'clock in the morning is when we're prepping our birds to go to market. And again, it's that thing about being outside and having access to the sky. So... Uh, we've learned a lot about the drivers. Another thing was uh, another big driver, access to broadband. Where there is no rural broadband, there's very few sighting reports. You have to have the ease to be able to report this stuff in order to make the reports. And in places where they have managed to get a little bit of rural broadband, we saw a big difference in the amount of sighting reports than what we had in 2017. Wow. Well, let me, let me ask you something, Cheryl. Um, um, do you happen to know a woman named Artie Sixkeller-Clark who wrote some books about Native American uh, encounters? Have you, have you discovered her? Do you know her? I know the name, but I don't know, don't know her personally, okay. and I don't know the work that well. Okay, so the last book that she wrote, 
she went on the, the, the Native American reservations. And the stories that she gathered, it, it looked like to me that, they were run, that, that some of the ETs were running some kind of experiments with the Native Americans because they were away from towns. They were out, you know, away from the population. Oh, yeah. And so it just occurred to me that, that some of the experiences that they had on the reservation were very indicative of a lot of things that we've been hearing for years about about abductions, about uh, women being taken and, and having, you know, hybrid babies and all of that. And she yep. writes about this in her book. Yep. And so I was, just, I was just curious if you had done any research about the Indian reservations, about their sightings. No, I specifically no. But when our book first came out, this, this one here came out uh, – Last last time we did a book, Amazon sat on it for about a month. Okay, they, before they they let it go out, we don't know why, but this time they hit it up in two days. We ended up being a very heavy seller for them in 2017. So this time they hit it out in two days. And one of the things I had a guy, I had a journalist up in South Dakota, and I'm a journalist, so you know I, I, these guys reached out to me, and I said um, we noticed something with your plot with the with. South Dakota, and South Dakota is like uh, second from the bottom for state status sightings, okay? He says, we were looking at the counties you had listed, and I said, yeah, and he says, well, Minnehaha County, and I said, yeah, what about it? He says, it's primarily a, uh, an Indian reservation, and that's the most sightings in the state. And I said, that doesn't surprise me. It doesn't surprise me at all, you know, and because I've heard these kinds of stories that you were mentioning, and um, so it, it's it's unique thing, but I'll tell you something early from my early years doing uh, my newspaper column. I was plotting New York State, which was my beat, and I couldn't make the hot spots, so beyond population, you know, city or something like this, I couldn't make the hot spots resonate with anything. My editor says, you know, run it against everything, fault lines, you know, um, uh, gas drilling, oil drilling, whatever, run it against everything. And I couldn't make it work with anything. So I called up the then, uh, at that time, the guy by the name of uh, Ben Moss was the uh, the state uh, chief investigator for MUFON. And I called Ben up, and I said, can you make a suggestion? He says, can you get a hold of your historical society and, like, get a map of the original Indian uh, territories in your state? Not the reservations, but the territories. I said, yeah, I should be able to. So went over to historical society. They got showed me something. We made, a like, a viewfoil kind of thing, and we did an overlay over the map, uh, my map. And uh, this thing lined up perfectly with the original Indian territories. So that says a lot right there, you know. <laughs> oh, um, wow. Yeah, of course. So something I'm doing now, though, is uh, when I added uh, zip code information to the database, a lot of people say, what the hell did you do that for? Well, counties are too big to get like to get um, a picture of how concentrated sightings are. And if you just go up by villages and towns, you might go into a more rural area and not just see a little scattering of things and nobody pays attention. Oh, we got to see where all the big sightings are, you know, and that's what happens. So we started plotting by zip code, and we started finding out because a zip code will cover a wider area of 
village towns and unincorporated municipalities. Okay, and we started getting some really, really interesting maps out of the thing. And one of the ones we were able to do, we found out the zip codes for a couple of the uh, the uh, Native American reservations here in New York State, and all of them were nailed. All of them had had log sightings. So you know, again, it's following that same pattern. And yet, you know, for all we know, that uh, they are coming down and um, abducting or borrowing or uh, people are volunteering to leave one or the other <laughs> with the aliens, you know. So who knows? But um, it does happen. It does have a high prominence around Native American uh, re uh, residential areas. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. So let me ask you, now the government has gathered some UFO statistics, but what have they done with them? Probably nothing, right? <laughs> They're just holding so, on to them? Well, well from what we know, um, give an example, when that report came out a few weeks ago, uh, they, the Navy was talking about their 144 sightings that they had in 20 years. And I had a, re a, a talk show host called me up on the phone. He says, so what would you think of that? There are 144. And I said, yeah, I got 167,632 for the same period. <laughs> you know, come on, guys. you the, the, you got to stop thinking that the military knows everything. Their money was shut off, except maybe for black programs. But their money was pretty much shut off by Dr. Conin back in 1968, 50 years ago. Theoretically, now unless it went into a black program someplace, uh, theoretically the government doesn't know anything about UFOs because they were told there was nothing, nothing worth spending money on to study them. And Dr. Conning got to basically the money shut off so academics couldn't get grants. There are agencies in the public side of the government that do research work, National Academy of Science, things like that, you know, but they have to have money, they have to have funding account, uh, being allocated from Congress, okay? So Dr. Condon told them, oh, these things aren't worth studying. And so suddenly newspapers aren't reporting them like they used to. And there was like, uh, like a switch went off with the, with the newspapers. They stopped printing local stories about UFO sightings. And there was no money available to do research, either at the academic level or at the government uh, agency level, unless it went into a black program. But even then, um, uh, I was talking to Lou Alessandro, and I said, you know, back, back a long time ago, I interviewed him. And I asked him, he said, do you think there really are black programs ha handling this stuff? He said, not from what we could find. So... Uh. Um, <laughs> Two, we put, two boxes went out of here about two, two and a half, three weeks ago. And they both of them weighed about five pounds apiece. I generated massive amounts of report data with summaries with each one of them. And one went to the Senate Intel Committee. And one went to the House Intel Committee. Linda and I put these things together, and we sent them to them. Says, by the way, if you decide to have congressional hearings, Linda and I, we are the two national civilian experts, guys. Okay, yes, I see that. Of course, today, you've got to know this for the rest of the joke. I go to leave the apartment today to go out to the post office to, to ship a book to another talk host, and I step, I, I'm looking out the window from the second floor, and I look out in the parking lot, and there's like seven police cars out there, state police, sheriff's office, local town police. The parking lot is full of black police cars. And I, my first thought that ran through my head, 
oh, my God, the congressmen are all pissed off at me. They've sent them to get me. <laughs> that was the first thing that crossed my mind. It turned out uh, it turned out somebody was doing a drug deal in our parking lot, and the, uh, the manager for the, the, the complex, we're in a 55-plus complex, and she happened to see it going down. She called 911 and said, we've got a drug deal going on in our parking lot of our uh, retired people's. Can you send help? And um, uh, they, sent, they sent like six cop cars, you know, <laughs> and it went on for quite a while out there but so when I first saw the cars I thought oh my god they've come for me you know wow <laughs> but, but that's what I did for my part of disclosure here recently that report that came from the task force used the word threat and threat to national security about nine times and that probably is enough ammunition for either committee chair of either the Senate or the House committees to organize congressional hearings. It's just enough fuel to get that to go. So we yeah. figured if there's going to be congressional hearings, they, by God, they should have a couple of civilian experts because we don't think the government has this data. And besides that, the military technically under Title 10, which is what they call the posse comitatus, like the Army's not supposed to be used for like police action, that type of thing. Technically, the Army can't, isn't supposed to have the civilian information. Technically, yeah. they can't go out to MUFON or National UFO Reporting right, Center and right. download their data. So I've got a leg up on them with the data that we've done and the way we've augmented that to be able to generate really, really good reports. So that's why Linda literally wrote the – no big – people in the UFO community tend to write these big, long, rambling letters. She wrote this she's – a, she's a former executive, and she just wrote this nice, terse, two-thirds of a page – letter with an executive summary at the top, boom, 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 boom. And if you hold congressional hearings, where do civilian experts call us? Yeah, and that's that great. Was it. That was it. And so, I think they will be calling you. So well, we, let me we ask, what, so. is, what is the generational effect? What is that? Generational effect, that's interesting. Um, we, can't, we can't prove it just yet, but we see indications of it. Like in the 2017 book, we saw indications of this leisure time thing. Um, the generational effect seems to be this. Los Angeles County, not the city, Los Angeles County has the most sightings of any count of the 3,200 uh, counties uh, and county-like entities in the country. Okay? And uh, we say county entities because there's some places that are cities, like especially down in front, like Virginia Beach is a city and a county incorporated together, that type of thing. And there's a lot of places like that in Virginia. And um, so the deal with with uh, Los Angeles County, it's got the it's got the most sightings of any county. In fact, it's got more sightings than 39 individual states by themselves. And in Maricopa County, which is essentially the Phoenix, Arizona area, they are the number two county in the country, and they have more sightings than 36 individual states. Now, what happened in Los Angeles? Well, Los Angeles County, they've had strange lights flying up and down the valleys and canyons out there since the 1880s. I've seen newspaper clips about it. Okay, and then of course back in February 1942 they had the, the Battle of L.A. So we think what there's is this is thing with Grandpa told us these great stories from back when he, they were shooting shells at the uh, the, the Battle of L.A. at that UFO and they didn't shoot it down. Da da da. Maybe if I look up regularly, I'll see something. 
Okay, and then if you go to Phoenix, what uh, 23 years ago or so, they had the Phoenix Lights, and it's the same thing. Mom and Dad talked about the thing, and the younger people are looking up more because maybe we'll see something cool like the like that big wedge-shaped thing with they saw, you know. So that's something we think is a, is also a driver. Um, something big happened, and people are culturally stimulated to watch this guy. Yeah. So can you tell us anything about who flies them, and have you had an indication of the different species? And I'm sure that traveling around all these years to all these UFO conferences, you have a lot of information about that, like like a lot of us do. But what's your hit about what you've learned personally through through your experiences? Who are the ones that are kind of leading the planet right now? Is there one particular species that you find kind of, I call it, everybody has their turn in the barrel. Whose turn is it in the barrel? (laughs) Yeah, okay. Okay, well, I blew some people's shorts off with this pink book. Oh, by the way, you you did notice this book is pink, bright enough to flag in an aircraft with it, right? Right. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. Okay. I'll come back to your who's driving them in a minute. That We made that book pink because last year in 2020, it was suggested to me that Linda and I were the civilian experts, and if, if there are congressional hearings in the next couple of years, we should be prepared for it. So when Linda and I were planning the book, we said, you know, if there are congressional hearings, by God, this book was put together by women, and by God, we're going to make sure those congressmen and senators, when they're up there on their panels, are plumbing through our book. You will know it's our book because it will be bright pink. It is right, Pete. Yes. <laughs> and, and and we are credited, by the way, this book weighs 2.7 pounds, and we're already credited with one concussion. Some wife had her husband over the head with his copy. Uh, okay, now, of the UFO shapes out there, I don't, we have no data to indicate who's flying them. Okay? But... Linda made a made an observation a few years ago when I was writing my column. She frequently would give me input. Now remember, of Linda, Linda and Cheryl Costa. Linda's got all the science degrees. Okay, she's a bona fide scientist. Okay, I'm not. I've got an arts and entertainment degree. I've got a degree in entertainment writing, and I went to film school. Okay, so um, uh, she, I've got the top hat and the cane. She's got the she's got the the, the beakers and test tubes. So the deal is, she made the comment that the shapes are different. In her estimation, each shape represents a different culture. Okay? Now, if you go to Swindle's big Palladian aircraft carrier type of ships, um, I've heard stories that they've got uh, 30 or 35 different species on board, and they all have their own brand of ship. That's what and I hear. Yes, that's what I hear as well. So I tend to uh, tend to run with that. Um, I don't know what the Greys are flying. I don't know what the Reptilians are flying. Um, uh, I don't know. Okay, uh, I do. I I know a lot of the smaller saucer shapes were beam ships from the Palladians. Fine, great. I'm okay with that. But can I definitively put that in my statistics book? No. I can just go but the categories that MUFON and New Fork use for their. Um, their shapes that they call. Um, now, what's interesting with some of these shapes is, if, you know, here in the United States, we're always about the mega, the bigger thing. You know, who's got the best numbers? What team's got the best scores? You know, that kind of mentality, okay? And whenever 
mainstream reporters come to me. They always want to know the, 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 the most prominent, what happens the most kind of thing, you know. And the real secret's in the tiny numbers, okay. Uh, we identify back in the, uh, from 2014 down to 2017, 18 time frame, the numbers of UFOs fell in, fell in the toilet, the sighting numbers dropped off 30% a year for about five years, okay, really hit bottom, okay. And, of course, uh, the guys at, Na uh, at Peter Davenport National UFO Reporting Center was complaining, maybe people are sabotaging the input to my, to my database, you know, you know we're, not, we're not getting the reports. And I kept trying to tell everybody, this is part of a natural six- to eight-year cycle. They'll be back. They'll be back by 2020, trust me. So I took 2019 off from writing UFO stuff. I, I had other projects I wanted to work on, and I went off and worked on them. And in the spring of 2020, I get a call from George Knapp. He said, my phone's ringing off the hook. And I did a couple of quick checks for the first two months with the National UFO Reporting Center data. And I plugged it against a spreadsheet I already had. And it was, I could predict that it was already going to be a, bit, a, a year as good as 2014 or 2012. Okay? And so, yeah, they're back. And they're back in force. They're back in spades. Okay? The, the UFO shapes. We don't know why they go. But here's something goofy we discovered. I was showing another expert this, and they were talking about everything being in the toilet. And I said, what if I told you there were four shapes that are on the rise? He said, what? I said, yeah, as soon as these guys started showing up, everybody else went home. It's huh. the Saturn, the Saturn shape ship, that one that looks like an acorn that the Japan Airlines flight uh, ran, uh, uh, I don't want to say the word ran into, but encountered in 1986 up around Alaska. It's a half a mile wide. It has the same agility of a seven, or better than a 747. And when they show up, there's only about 35, uh, about 35, 40 of them a year, but around the 2017, 18 time frame, there was about 70 or 80 a year sightings. Doesn't look like much. In fact, when I went looking for it on the chart, I couldn't find it because it was so far down on the chart from everything else, I couldn't, I couldn't discern it from the bottom line of the graph. There were so few of them until I blew it up and just looked at that sighting, okay? But when that Saturn shape shows up, there are two or three other shapes that show up with it, and we see increased numbers, the egg-shaped shape and the teardrop-shaped ship. And we think the teardrop is like a shuttle ship, bigger, bigger things, and the egg shape might be like a small scout ship. And obviously, like with an aircraft carrier, the aircraft carrier isn't going to come into every port, but they'll send in helicopters, they'll send in planes, and there's more frequency with the aircrafts and, and the helicopters, okay? Well, we see the same kind of a pattern here. Okay, this is my Navy training coming up because I, I, did, um, I did analysis work in the Navy. And so I said, you know, that looks like a mothership, and these other two are some kind of support ships. And uh, I got a couple of people who are very serious investigators looking at that, and saying, "Yeah, that's a good that's a good call." So it's that sounds right to me. It's Absolutely, not always the big numbers, you know. Yeah, yeah. So have so have you um, run who's across driving? anybody? Let me say who's driving them. This is what oh, I yeah, tell the main, this is what I tell the mainstream talk show hosts. It might be government pilots. It might be aliens. It might be uh, pilots from uh, civilian pilots from some aerospace company working on them. It could be the Teamsters. I don't know who's flying. 
I just count them. <laughs> you just count them. Okay. You know, uh, on the History Channel last year, they had Project Blue Book. It was yep. a, a series. Yep. And uh, I thought it was very interesting the way they presented the material. And I hope that, that Season 2 comes back again. I, I don't know if you've seen it or not, Project Blue Book on the History Channel. I, I saw you... it. Yeah, I saw it when it was live. Yeah. Yeah. So I thought it, that was... Uh, something that I'd been waiting on to see for a very, very long time. Very I can tell you a little story about that. I was at Megacon in February of 2019, and one of the guests that we had there to, uh, the night of our banquet, you know, um, George Knapp interviewed the executive producer for the Project Blue Book series, okay? And they were up there on stage and asking him questions and things, and they got kind of blown away. This guy got blown away when he said, you know, we all thought that UFO stuff was back in the 40s and 50s. We didn't know it goes on now, you know. And uh, I had one copy left of my of my 2017 book in my room. So I ran up to my room and got it. And I had access to the stage area. So I went backstage. And when, when uh, David came off, I, said, I introduced myself and I said, you know, in the last seven, in the last 15 years, we've had 120,000 sight, 121,000 sightings. And I put the book in his hand, and he started thumbing through it. And he says, "I'm going to put this in the writer's suite at where you know where we write these episodes." I said, "Good, enjoy." And then later, he grabbed me. He said, "I want it autographed." You know, so. Uh, but yeah, they they were blown away by the fact of the stuff that we know that they did not know about UFOs. It's, it was rather intriguing. Yeah. Wow. Okay, so I have a feeling that this book that you've um, written uh, is is going to really take off. A lot of people are going to get it and then start demanding answers from from yeah. the people that should know. Yeah, you know, you know, folks, folks in the audience, you know, uh, if you go onto Amazon and you go to books and you look up Cheryl Cost, Cheryl with a C, Cost with a C, you'll see our books there. The pink book. This one's the pink book. You'll see it there. It's 2001 to 2020. If you print off that page that's got all the publisher information on it and you take it into the information desk at your local library and say you should have this in your collection, they will probably order it for you. And it's not about me trying uh, to sell a book. They get a big, believe me, libraries get a significant discount from the publisher. So um, it's not even about sales. Uh, I appreciate the sales, believe me, but um, it funds the other projects we're doing. Um, Our next books that we're working on right now, and this is kind of a weird project we're working on. We're going to do 50 individual states because we want, remember I said I wanted to print down, I wanted to be able to print right down to the municipal level. If I printed in this this desk reference, if we tried to print the UFOs and set it down to the county level, if we wanted to print it down to the municipal level, the book would be as thick as three Oxford dictionaries stacked on each other. It would be 6,800 pages. That's over a foot thick. Yeah. Wow. Can't can't do that. So what we after we published this, we actually started working on it last week. We've got about 10 states almost uh, formatted for this, and we're getting ready to do the rest. 
we're going to publish 50 individual state books, one for every single state that literally has sort of like most of the reference material, but really focuses on the states and what counties and their zip codes and all that kind of stuff, and some special stuff related just to the individual state. And it goes, and then going to back, there will be a chart there that will go down from county to municipal level, right down, and then there also have another uh, another printout that will go. Um, uh, every zip code in the state and right along with it is all the shapes and their numbers for 20 years uh, that were seen at, in that zip code or that city or that little burg or that little uh, village or something like this. And uh, those books are going to be probably, each individual state book will probably be somewhere between about half the size of this desk reference or as big as the desk reference thickness, desk reference 400 pages. So each state will have a very substantial book. And then we're going to do take the 33 UFO shapes and we're going to do one book dedicated to every single shape. It'll be a wow. It'll be a total, of, when we're done, about you know, over about the next 18 months to two years. We have a rapid production process for doing this. But um, what's, what's going to happen is we will have produced between the, the desk reference and these, these books. Uh, we'll be producing about 80 or 90 books on UFOs, and it will be the largest collection of compiled UFO data ever published in human history to the public sector, and it will be done to, by two old gay ladies. <laughs> <laughs> well, you probably need some help. Are you recruiting people to help you with some of this? That's a lot for the two of you to do. No, amazingly enough, uh, the way we got the database formatted and the way we've got our report, the report, computer reports to generate the charts, the hardest part is, is formatting the report. Uh, once the data comes out, is formatting it to fit 32 rows per page kind of thing. Um, oh, that's the okay. that's the time that's the time consuming part because you have to put we have to put a banner on there, but um, it's something you do on a rainy afternoon, okay? Kind yeah. of thing. And uh, I've gotten pretty good at it, and uh, I can do about right lately with the uh, some of the smaller states. I'm doing about four a day. I did one today that took me all day to do one the, all three charts that we have to do for a state, and uh, the rest of the stuff that's in the book is stock stuff that we did about you remember in uh, in the pink book we had a thing that talked about measuring the phenomena that 30 page article about how to measure right. the phenomena that is going to be in there and there's a couple of other essays that we wrote will be in there but for the most part um uh, we'll focus on the data for each individual state and it's got a unique and the cover is not going to be quite as um stiff and academic as this one for the pink book was we've got kind of a little bit of a cartoon cover there you know you, there's a UFO flying over the the the, the, the um, graphic of the shape of the state or something like that, or a cow being yeah, lifted off the right. state or something. You know, uh, <laughs> we've been having some we've been having fun. There's some good clip art out there that we own, so we've been having fun with that. But that's the plan. Uh, we're going to take a break for about three months because we're moving. To, we're going to be moving to Cleveland, Ohio, by the end of uh, October. Oh wow! Uh, Linda's originally from Cleveland and uh, wants to retire there, and she's getting ready to retire here in the next mo couple of months. And uh, we're just going to uh, – we've been thinning out the house. Anything that wasn't nailed down that we really didn't want, we, we listened to the little Japanese lady. You know, if it doesn't give us love, it's going into a garbage bag or it's going to Goodwill, you know. Yeah. And we have been – we're thinning down like a couple of college students, honest to goodness. And um, 
uh, give you an example in the apartment we're going to go into. We're going to take the master bedroom and make it that into our TV room. We're just going to put the bed in the second bedroom, and then we're going to take what would normally be considered the living room. We don't entertain, trust me. So um, we're going to put her sewing nest at one end. It's going to put my writing nest at the other end, and we're going to put a great big, um, uh, oh, God, uh, dining room table-style drafting table in the middle for laying out projects on it. Or, or oh, that sounds out, like a workable out. plan. So I'm and looking at the time right now. I'd, okay, I, I know. I we're haven't. running out of time. Go. I, I want to pass you over to my co-host, Ariel, who has the switchboard, because someone may want to call in and ask you something. Sure, if you're, sure. Love to take calls. Short of an ATM pin, I'll answer anything you want to know. Okay, so <laughs> anytime okay. that you, you have something that you want to uh, come on our show and tell us, even if it's just for five minutes, if there's something really important, that, that our Starseed audience needs to know. We, we've been on the air for many, many years, so we have a very awake Starseed audience. And if you need people to get out there and, and get the word out, our Starseeds can do it. That's what I'm saying to you. That's what so I've been I, looking for is an audience that would be willing to possibly go on oh, there, make a copy of that booklet, and, and take yes, it into your talk, local you're, library. You're talking to the right audience, that's for sure. So I'd like to pass you over to Ariel at this time. So back to you, Ariel. Okay. Well, um, I, I just had one one thing that I wanted to talk to you about be, before I bring that up. Um, if anyone who is already on the switchboard has a question for Cheryl, all you need to do is press 1, and um, we'll get you ready to come on and ask the question. If you're listening on the computer, then pick up the phone and dial 917-889-8292. And then once you're in, press 1, and um, our producers will get you uh, ready to ask your question to Cheryl. So uh, now having said that, um, as I was talking, uh, I, I was wondering, Lavender, even if, if you had thought about this, um, have you ever heard of T. Roy Dutton? He was, um, um, he just, he passed away recently um, at a ripe old age, but he was in the British aerospace um, industry and he came up with a computer program that noticed patterns in the trajectory of when the ships came um, the timing of when they came the path that they took it was like invisible um, like you know like you see at an airport you see the landing strip with all the lights it's like invisible that in the sky um, have you ever heard of him or his work I've heard of him, but I, I don't. I, I, like I said, I've cursory heard of him, but I don't know a great deal about the work. Yeah. I, well, I know yeah. about what you know, just about what you said. <laughs> yeah, well, I, I don't. I mean, I don't really understand or comprehend because I mean, this guy was a genius. But he's got a book called "We Are Definitely Not Alone." Oh, so God, you might yeah. want to, because I'm thinking book. like, oh my God, what <laughs> if somebody like you? got a hold of his, um, you know, could understand what he's talking about and and then lay that over your statistics, um, I think that would be fascinating so that, you know, you, you know not only the areas where they show up but what direction they come in from. Um, well, yeah, okay, it, that, that's, that's a little on the hard side because sometimes just, they just wink in. You know well, that's I mean? true. That's true. So, but one That's thing true. we have done, though, we have um, because we have the, the zip code data. 
uh, we've been able to plot every zip code in every single state for the entire United States um, where they have been. Now, there are 42,000 zip codes in the United States. There's 42,000 and change. Um, we, there have been UFO sighting reports from 18,600 of them. Okay, and when you wow. plot it out by you do that zip code report instead of just for the whole country, you do it for individual shapes. You find that some shapes are predominant to some states more than others, which we find to be very interesting. Some that they have in say saucer shapes happen to be in one state, or blimp states, blimp, ten, ten, blimp shaped UFOs tend to be in one state. You know. Um, uh, there are some states that have almost no sightings at all, but they, one of the rarer shapes seems to show up there, you know, that type of thing. So we've, this is new stuff we're discovering, but it's amazing stuff. Yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, thinking about, as you're talking, I'm like, okay, because, I mean, part of our work is um, helping people to remember and and wake up to their galactic heritage because I mean, star seeds are basically ETs in a human body, um, and and that can be decoded in the in the uh, your natal chart. But I'm just wondering if, as you were talking, it's like, oh, I wonder if you know um, the. I, I just you know it's like, well, maybe the maybe the Pleiadians have more more business going on, more projects going on in one area, so you might see their ships, or maybe if, if you know, another uh -huh. race uh -huh. has, you know, their their uh, their kids, their offspring, their projects, whatever, um, are kind of concentrated in another area. That, to me, would make sense. I wish I... I wish I had a correlation between species and the shapes of ships. I wish I did, because I, that's exactly the kind of research I would love to do. Um, uh, it, you know, it's, it's weird because, you know, uh, there's a lot of talk about star seeds. I truly believe that there's been a generation of them here previously. And um, like myself, we're, I'm almost 70, you know, and we're wearing out. It's, t it's time for these new star seeds to pick up the reins and to carry on the research and that type of thing. Yeah, and, and they are. And I mean, really, um, the star seeds have been here, especially the Pleiadians, uh, since before written history. Oh gosh! But yes. they they and they would like you know stop by, check check it out, but not like you know in recent years. You know, since well, since we started um, the industrial age, there's been a lot of I think a lot of um, extra activity. You know, especially around the turn of the century, late 1800s, you know, and all the all the 20th century, as you know, technology is taking us to the brink of uh, you know disaster, kind of like Atlantis yeah, yeah, all over yeah, yeah. again. So, and well, I think that <clears throat> because of that, they have sent more troops uh, because you can't you can't change a society from the outside; you have to change it from the inside. Yeah. And, and yes. yeah, and so there's been, you know, I mean the the one of the earliest waves that of people that we work with, I mean, it came in the 30s and 40s, yep. and then there was, you know, another layer coming, and there's been, 
That's steadily ever That's since. But since the 1980s, yep. it's, it's gone off the charts. Um, oh yeah. yeah, oh yeah. yeah. Uh, I mean, if, if the ones in the 30s and 40s and 50s were were um, uh, seeding, um, the people in the uh, in the late 70s, early 80s was like shock troops. Trust me, there's a lot of them, you know. And uh, it's quite impressive how it's happening. You know, it's interesting. I was on a mainstream talk show, and they said, "How come now? How come the Navy's having all this stuff happening to it now?" I said, well, it's one of two things. One of like two or three things. And he said, well, what? Like what? And I said, well, um, uh, maybe we're so close to our tipping point. They're really trying to get our attention. You know, uh, we really, you know, everybody poo-pooed all this stuff. We, uh, I, there are scientists like Linda who, t- who told people 40 years ago this is all going to go down in about 40 years, and everything she ever told me is coming to pass. You know. And uh, she was in the environmental research field. So uh, she was one of the early people in that field. So it, it, it just, they may be really leaning into us and saying, we have got to help you change this or or else. And uh, right. that's well, I what mean, I personally think is going on. Uh, listening to, you know, Anastasia's news, every week she discovers more tidbits, uh, you know, like the the people in Scotland um, uh-huh. or, or the, the corporations, you know, the state of Maine banning, you know, permanent chemicals, uh, things like that. Uh, About time, yeah, you bet. Yeah, yeah, and I and I think, I mean, truly, I, I think the pandemic was an eye-opener. It was a huge slap-in-the-face wake-up call uh, because, you know, we have, there are certain people that have really harmed the earth, and, and you know, it's part of the, the Starseed mission to um, offset that, to balance that, to, to, you know, heal that. So, you know, I'm, and I'm quite sure, certain that if, if we ran charts for these people who are making these big moves in the right direction, I guarantee you they're going to have star markings on their chart. I mean, I would be absolutely shocked. And if they didn't, you know, they might, they might be a walk-in or something. <laughs> but, um, but, yeah, that they're... There was the vanguard, you know, the leaders, uh, the people that, that were born in the, you know, 30s, 40s, 50s. And then, you know, it's just been more and more. And then they gave birth to another generation. Like you said, it's a, it's a generational thing. Um, so if, you're, if your parents were open-minded or, uh, you know, kind of that Aquarian age in their heart, um, then that's going to get passed down as well. So um, I was just going to ask you something else, and it fell out of my brain. Uh, oh, well, how about you? I mean, you personally, have you seen, have you had a sighting of your own? Or oh, you said when you were 12, but since then? Hello? Okay, um, am I talking to silence? Hello? Uh, okay, I'm okay. here. Can you hear me now? Oh, yeah, yeah. Did you, I mean... <laughs> I, just heard a, um, I just heard a mechanical voice say unmuted, so... Oh, yeah, because I, 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 just, I just went and checked your, your, your mic, and, and yeah, it, it somehow 
muted itself, but um, I guess I was the one talking, me. so maybe it's it too noticeable. Believe me, it happens all the time. <laughs> yeah. So um, besides, the, you know, that early first one when you were 12, have you had other sightings of your own? Oh, yeah, all, uh, over the years, many, okay. Um, some maybe not as that had as much of a dramatic effect on me, but about a year before I started writing my newspaper column, I was working for a different newspaper. And remember, this is my retirement job out getting out of aerospace, okay, and getting into journalism. And I came home at 3.30 in the morning. We had just put the morning edition to bed. I just put the car away, and I usually had this um, little ritual standing there since in June of 2012. And uh, I had a little ritual of looking out at the uh, the Big Dipper. Like I could see it very clearly from my backyard, and it was a clear night. I'm standing there looking at it and just kind of chilling. And all of a sudden, I start hearing this kind of sound, right, you know, kind of a humming, pulsing sound. And I start noticing the stars above me are getting blotted out. And this was one of those football field long, two-and-a-half, three-story steep triangular ships. Wow. And it took my breath away. I just sat there and just marveled at this thing. And he was only flying 35, 40 miles an hour, a nice leisurely, you know, just flying overhead. And I was afraid in those days, I was afraid to report it, you know. But I made notes, I went inside, made notes in my journal book, okay. Uh-huh. And then about eight months later, I'm writing this newspaper column, right. And deep in, I'm going through some data looking for something, and on that particular day, I happen to remember the date, I looked at the date, there was a nurse coming off shift from Cross Hospital over over on another hill here in Syracuse, it's kind of like Rome, we have several different hills, and over coming out of Cross Hospital over on the other one of the other hills, which is literally to the east of me, she saw this thing uh, over in the, uh, on the western side of town, which is where I lived, um, and she saw this thing and described it very much some, the way I did, and uh, that that did a lot for me to to know that someone else saw this marvelous thing at 3:30 in the morning, you know. Wow. And, uh, it, it, yeah, I've seen some cool stuff over the years. Uh, my spouse has seen some amazingly cool stuff as well. Um, but I have to say one thing though to your listeners. Not every peop- not everybody can see them. Um, I have done newspaper reports where ten people were at a, a hunting lake up on, up in the Adirondack Mountains or something like this, and five people could see this thing as a craft. Three or four more of the ten people see it as sort of a very abstract, cartoonish kind of thing, and then the last two or three people, they're looking right at it and they can't see it. Remember, your eyes perceive your brain processes, and if your if your state of mental and spiritual enlightenment is not to the right level, um, you you can have one park right there in front of it, in front of you, and you'll never see it. Okay, your 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 um, your the word I'm looking for. Your reality needs to have a certain degree of elasticity to see these things. Mm-hmm. And uh, some people who see them, they're never quite the same afterwards, you know. And and that's I think half I think half the time, the reason they're flying around is they are trying to alter our state of of reality awareness and trying to enlighten our darn culture. 
that has been a theory of mine. Yeah, and I'm sure that's part of it. Mine. Yeah. So, so um, Fiona, one of our producers, has a question for you, so I'm sure, going to bring sure, her on sure. right now. Okay, Fiona, take it away. Hi there, Cheryl. Yeah, thank you. Thank you, Ariel. Um, Cheryl, I just have enjoyed you being on the show tonight, and I thank you for being one of our guests. And I find your work just fascinating. Um, it just seems that you've consolidated all the research and the data you've collected into that book. And, frankly, I find your your personal history amazing as well. So my question would be, um, I'm interested in how did the UFO column New York Skies begin and how did you come to write for the column? And the second part of my question is what would be your personal goal for your work? Okay, I started writing, I went around, um, it was, um, it, the, the column actually started, the idea behind the column started on November 5th, 2012. Uh, I saw a sidebar story on CNN.com, the webpage, and it said, UFOs have been declining since the 1980s. Maybe they were always just an urban legend. And I didn't believe it. I said, that doesn't sound right. And for the first time in my life, I went out to the National UFO Reporting Center website. And I dug down into the website, and I found some summary pages where they had year-end summaries. And I pulled the numbers out, and I started sticking them into a, a very simple uh, Excel spreadsheet. And then I plotted over uh, over a 20-year period, like from 1982 to, to like 2012. And it went up like a rocket. And I yeah. said, well, okay, if they're supposedly declining and they're not, uh, what memo didn't the UFOs get, you know? <laughs> and and I started reading some of these write-ups in the report, in the, in the, the uh, UFO reports, and I never knew what to believe. But I saw that most people were very sincere and just wanted to get something off their chest. So I, I was a budding journalist at that point. So I started taking some of these stories and I started punching them up a little bit to make it a little bit more readable. But the, the information about the sighting was always correct. But, you know, I didn't know who the people were. So if I said Bob and uh, Ted and Susie were on the hood of his car watching the stars, uh, I didn't know what kind of car, so I made it up. I didn't know who their real names were, so I just said Ted and Susie. Okay. And my editor eventually, when I got, 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 the, got the contract to go ahead and write a column, was good with that because we didn't want to out anybody because of the stigma. But I went to about six different editors, and they laughed me out of the office. Okay. In one case, they had me escorted to the door by security, different newspapers. <laughs> so uh, I made a phone call over to a weekly newspaper we had there. The new editor-in-chief used to be our chief copy editor at the paper. I did work for it, but I worked in the technical department. I made the plates every night. Okay. <laughs> so I went over to see Larry. And uh, Larry and I sat there and had a Coke together, and we were talking. And it turned out we were about the same age, and we read a lot of the same books in high school about UFOs. Mm -hmm. So, And he had had a sighting in high school like I did. So he said, I'm sympathetic. I can't write this column, but you can. He said, mm -hmm. I'll try you out for a month. We'll see what happens. And he had this tone <laughs> kind of like from the Princess Bride, like the Dread Pirate Roberts, I'll most likely kill you in the morning kind of thing. I'll most likely kill you in a month kind of thing. And um, so he calls me up at, about five weeks later, 
he said, come on over, we have to talk. I figured, well, that's it. <laughs> it's over with, you know. And I, I couldn't find a parking place in the parking lot. They were tearing it up, you know. I finally found a place. I'm five, ten minutes late to the meeting. I come walking in. All the columnists are sitting around this board table. Larry's standing up pontificating to them. He stops. He looks over, sees me, points at me, and says, there's our rock star. Oh, I said, nice. what, what do you mean? And he looks over at the other columnists, and they're all starting to hang their heads a little bit. He says, you're pulling more page views than all of them combined. This is on the online edition. And he said, wow. just keep doing what you're doing. Six months later, the digital editor, who was my boss technically at the paper, uh, I was always a freelance. I was always I'm never on a straight payroll. I got paid freelance pay. And they, the, the digital editor comes to me six months later and said, you're pulling a national audience. We're a little dinky wig-cleeper in upstate New York, and you're pulling a national audience. Nice. So fine. We get to the Christmas party. The publisher and him take me up in front of everybody and says, she's pulling an international audience. <laughs> so that's how popular the column was, because we treated the UFO topic matter very matter-of-factly. In fact, we didn't write about it in sensation. We basically wrote about it like the, the, the burglary across the street, the fire down the, down around the corner, or the car accident uh, three blocks away. We, we wrote about it very, very matter-of-factly. And people mm-hmm. liked the fact that we treated it like everything else, and we treated it with respect. Wow. That's awesome. Yeah. That's amazing. I can imagine you met with, a, a, you know, maybe a little bit of headbutting, like you said, it, it could do that. And um, so to continue with that, I, what is your personal goal with your work? What do you want people to know about the outcome of how you want this work to affect people? Um, if you look at what the the government said here about a couple of weeks ago and said, hey, they had 140, 144 sightings, you know. And mm-hmm. my argument to a lot of people, some people down at the coffee shop was, I said, big deal. And they said, what do you mean big deal? And I said, I got 167,632. And he said, what? I said, that's how much is going on. Well, we never hear about that. He says, yes, the re- papers have not reported this stuff since the 60s. Okay? Everybody thinks these things are rare. You know, mm-hmm. and they're not rare. It's a very common. Even if you if you throw seventy percent away, we still have a lot of these things every bloody day, and mm-hmm. that's what I want people to know. They're here. They're here in spades, and mm-hmm. the different shapes represent different cultures. Uh, mm-hmm. I can't tell you which ones, but they represent different cultures and different viewpoints, and maybe a different approach to the kind of technology they need to fly those ships, and. Um, there's also a lot of bad misinformation out there. If you Google um, uh, reptilian aliens, okay, mm-hmm. nine times out of ten you will get a picture of some overly muscular, mean-looking reptilian creature. It looks like he needs a really prunes, you know. <laughs> uh, I mean, just absolutely mean-looking guy, and it's an agenda issue because everyone, yeah. every experiencer I've ever interviewed that new reptilians. They're gentle, they're soft, they're enlightened, and they've got an incredible sense of humor. Mm-hmm. And they're much okay. gentler looking than any any of these pieces of this this battle art you're seeing. Okay? Mm-hmm. And that's part of this agenda type of thing. 
and frankly, the fact that we see gray aliens on on um, on uh, greeting cards these days, things like this, you know, that's an agenda item as well, as far as I'm concerned, because I'm not exactly yeah. too impressed with the grays. I've, I've met too damn many people that had a rough time with them uh, uh, on their uh, being probed on their ship or something, you know. So I'm not mm-hmm. too impressed with the grays. Uh, very interesting. Well, I so thank you for those answers. It's very enlightening. Um, as I said before, I think it's interesting. I hope you really continue gung-ho with this work and um, really bring it out there to the public. I, I think you're doing an amazing job. Thanks thank for you. answering my question. Nice to talk to you. Thank you. And uh, Linda wanted to be on the show, but um, we, we just weren't set up to do two phone lines. So um, maybe sometime in the future you can have Linda on by herself. Now, she shoots from the hip with a different kind of machine gun than I do. And <laughs> she will give you a completely different talk because she's a scientist and she has a lot of attitude about the fact that there's a lot of people doing stuff in the UFO community, but they're not putting a lot of, they're not laying a lot of science to what they're doing. We really wanted to do a lot of science with this, these two books. Mm-hmm. Yeah, accolades. Very good. Okay. Well, th- thanks for um, coming on the air, Fiona. Um, and yeah, yeah. Uh, we'll talk to you in a bit. Okay. okay. Bye-bye. Bye. Well, um, I'm going to go out on a little bit of a limb here and just say that the perception of whether or not a race is warm and cuddly and sweet and kind, that's also an agenda. So some of the ones that are being portrayed as nice are really not, and some of the ones who are not are really are. So Thank you. I'm just you just put that out there. So you always have to go inside and seek your own higher self discernment as to um, you know what each race's agenda may be. Mm-hmm. And I, I just I know if they're part of the Federation, they are non-interference and benevolent here for to help us. And Thank if they're you. not part of the Federation, they have their own agenda, and it may not be in our best interest. But you just gotta you know I keep think about what was that movie um, 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 Independence Day. Mm-hmm. When the big ship was coming and it was hanging hanging over the skyscraper, and this girl that was like a, a you know a bubble brain kind of goes up there and is like, oh, it's so beautiful! Right before the big beam came and wiped her out, yeah. it's like you can't you can't be that naive. You have to know that um, you know you just have to keep your eyes and ears open and and use your best discernment because. I- Eighty you percent know, of them, even you know, eighty-five percent are are benevolent and here for our benefit. Yep. On that note, there's a, um, a another one of our radio guests, uh, Craig Campobasso, who came out with the extraterrestrial species almanac, and it's got page after page of like eighty-two different species uh, drawings of what they look like, what their agenda is, where they're from, and all that stuff. So uh, I think that coupled with your book will help people just get a um, a better handle on what the truth is. Um, you know, it, it. I don't know if I normally say this, but there's 128 spacefaring races in the Milky Way galaxy. Uh, 11 of them in our sector, 
seven that are here right reg visit regularly and supposedly upwards of 60 have visited our planet at one point or another so it, it, there's there's you know i lived in a buddhist monastery for about seven years and if i came back learning anything there was the universe is teeming with life and every one of us is connected to everyone else everywhere everyone well said well said and I think that's a good note to wrap up with. And I just want to remind everyone, if you want to um, get a copy of uh, Cheryl and Linda's book, just go to Amazon and type in Cheryl Costa, and that's Cheryl with a C and Costa with a C. And uh, both of those books will pop right up. So it's been a wonderful, wonderful interview. Thank you so much for your time awesome. and, uh, and your work Please. on the planet. And when you have... When you've got more, let Lavendar know because we want you back. Okay. Well, we'll in a couple of months, about, uh, by fall, actually closer to winter, we'll have a bunch more stuff, cool stuff coming. Great. Great. I'm looking forward to that. Thank you very much for having me. Okay. You're so welcome. Thanks so much, Cheryl. And that's it for us tonight. Um, next week, I mean, we will be back three weeks from tonight because we're going to Arkansas. So um, just check our show page for the next guest. And until we meet again, hold gratitude in your heart and give compassion over judgment. Good night, everyone. You've been listening to Starseed Radio Academy. Visit our website at www.starseedhotline.com.